Welcome to the ATS RCMB podcast. Today, Dr. Francesca Polverino sits down with Dr. Eden Neptune to discuss advances and controversies in our understanding of the pathogenesis of COPD, particularly early COPD. Dr. Polverino is an assistant professor of medicine and head of the Translational COPD Laboratory within the Asthma and Airway Disease Research Center at University of Arizona. Dr. Enid Neptune is associate professor of medicine and head of her own lab at John Hopkins University. Thank you very much, Enid, for uh, accepting to uh, have this uh, conversation with me. Um, the topic that we decided to address today is the early COPD, in particular the definition of early COPD. Um, we will be uh, discussing about a few points about definition, the pathobiology, and the new cohorts coming up right now which are studying early COPD and the possible interventions in the field of early COPD. First of all, Aneda, um, I would like to ask you, uh, what do you think about the current definition of early COPD? There was a paper which came out in the Bull Journal just recently from F.J. Martinez and the, the other co-authors, um, um, which uh, added the definition of early COPD according to the age of onset, the decline of FD1, the CCB abnormalities. What do you think about that? Um, I, I think it's a good starting point the, because, as you and I both know, um, the definition of COPD is it is a syndrome of chronic airflow obstruction that's typically triggered by cigarette smoke exposure or other toxic exposures. And, and therefore, it's critical, if we accept that definition, that we have some aspect of airflow obstruction kind of in the definition even of early COPD. But um, the challenge with that definition is that the conception of early COPD kind of means different things to different people. And, um, and so I think it, these definitions typically fall into three baskets. And the first basket is what you mentioned, and that is COPD of early onset. And when we say early onset, we're usually talking about kind of COPD that's diagnosed before the age of 50, or even more striking when it's diagnosed before the age of 40. Now, that's an incredibly important basket, because what that potentially captures are those persons who, for a variety of reasons, start off with suboptimal maximal lung function as young adults. And therefore, they're either much more susceptible to accelerated lung function decline or any type of exposure that could accelerate lung function decline. Or with the normal deterioration in lung function that we see as we age, they have a much greater likelihood of developing clinical COPD kind of at an earlier age. So that is kind of useful to capture that basket. But the, the challenge is that those are scenarios that aren't necessarily tied to cigarette smoke exposure or any other kind of exposure. And, um, and therefore, we need to kind of think about whether early COPD really fits in that group that has early onset disease. The, the second basket are those who have what I call mild COPD or COPD of 
kind of relatively mild severity. And we're talking there about patients who have what we call gold one or or possibly, you know, early gold two COPD, where they are not significantly symptomatic and they have kind of a, a mild loss of lung function. And in that group, the challenge is determining which of those persons will actually develop progressive disease. And therefore, the early designation is a temporal point in time because it's distinct from what we call late COPD, which will be punctuated by more disability, more lung function deterioration, and a more expanded battery of symptoms. And the last basket, I think, is, is similarly controversial, and those are the persons with chronic cigarette smoke exposure who have normal lung function. And those are what we call smokers, or uh, several years ago were termed gold zero patients. And that designation has recently become quite interesting because of a few papers in high-profile journals that suggest that they, they actually do have significant healthcare needs and actually have some features of COPD, specifically exacerbations, shortness of breath, some kind of CT findings that are seen with kind of more garden variety COPD. But the real question is, what is the intervention for those patients? And two, whether they should be folded into what we classically call COPD because they don't have airflow obstruction. And, um, and so those three baskets the challenge of this whole concept of early COPD. Yeah, I, I, you touched a very interesting point, and I would like to go back again to the definition of early COPD, which has been published in the Blue Journal uh, recently. So we, we should remember that uh, right now we are moving towards the era of personalized medicine, and I think it cannot be accepted anymore to define uh, the COPD patients just with uh, the FP1 and the dedicated FP1, and also, for example, the definition of early COPD as uh, um, whoever smoked more than uh, 10 pack years and uh, at a certain age developed lung obstruction, it doesn't really fly because if you think about that, uh, almost 30% of patients with COPD worldwide are never smokers. So they develop COPD pretty early in age. So will these people fit into the basket of early COPD? And the answer is that I don't think that these people will fit the basket in early COPD because they are never smokers. So probably um, wide epidemiologic studies are needed in order to address this concern. And also, there are people who are much younger than 50-year-old and uh, um, approximately 10% of the individuals in the general population have a low lung function before 40 years. And I think we should also address what happens to this kind of individuals. That there are several studies that, are sh that show that um, there is a genetic predisposition. There is also perinatal and prenatal events which can determine the onset of uh, uh, lung obstruction early in age. For example, anatomic dysfunction like bronchopulmonary dysplasia or uh, um, some individuals are born with uh, a lack of some terminal bronchi. 
And so I think uh, the research is, since COPD has been always been considered a disease of the elderly, nothing is really known about what happens in the lung of people uh, early in the age. Because actually research has never been focused on, uh, on the, the pathobiology of uh, COPD in the young individual. We only focus on the pathobiology of mild COPD, which does not mean it's not the same as early onset COPD. And talking about that, I think that we should move to the second point, which is the pathobiology and the, the subphenotypes of, of COPD. As you know, um, the emphysema-predominant COPD is very different from airway disease. Um, there are complete, two completely different subphenotypes, which are um, characterized by a completely different pathobiology. They have different management, a different diagnosis. So what do you think about this current definition of COPD, which has compasses under the same umbrella, emphysema and airway disease? Um, I think it's... Um, I think it's an interesting distinction because um, many of us remember that um, the kind of different classifications of COPD historically fell under the umbrella of um, versus chronic bronchitis. And more recently, there was a systemic kind of inflammation component where you could have generalized muscle weakness that was included. But... I think most people who work on COPD re realize that there are many different conditions that are under the COPD umbrella. And, um, and, I, and I think, you know, going back to kind of our discussion of early COPD, one of the ways that we might be able to operationalize that definition is by kind of determining which patients with possibly mild airway obstruction have a greater likelihood of having ongoing deterioration and the development of more serious and more clinically consequential late disease. And those may well be the patients, as you said, who have either airway-predominant COPD or emphysema-predominant COPD. And, and I think um, some of the information that we've um, accessed more recently has kind of given us tools to understand the distinction between those two types of COPD, but also recognize that with more advanced disease, those phenotypes do coexist. And um, let's talk a little about um, kind of the emphysema-dominant uh, COPD. I think this aspect of um, the syndrome has been the most intriguing over the last five or so years. Um, when CT densitometry was first advanced, the idea was that we could determine on a quantitative basis the kind of aggregate area of the lung that were kind of what we call low attenuation areas, and thus represent some loss of alveolar tissue consistent with emphysema. However, more recently, as kind of we've incorporated that technology and, and those at least provisional definitions, it's become clear that kind of the, um, the quantitation of, of, um, of low attenuation areas may be a biomarker of more advanced disease and may actually association with mortality. The more kind of useful 
assessment of emphysema is a qualitative assessment. What that means is actually the presence of emphysema and the different morphologies of emphysema may be a much more directed and precise kind of risk factor for early mortality as well as for the morbidities and the health consequences of, of COPD. So the, the question is, how do we reconcile that? How do we kind of say, well, why is the qualitative um, um, presence of emphysema different from the quantitative um, extent of, of emphysema? And some of that has to do with the technology for that ascertainment. Unfortunately, many studies don't really use the same platform, the same kind of analytic tools to establish kind of quantitative densitometry. And so it's, it's hard to know whether you're looking at exactly the same thing in one study versus another. And, but the actual designation of emphysema or not emphysema is pretty clear and pretty kind of accessible for most radiologists. So I think what behooves the COPD community in the future is actually to use these designations of different types of emphysema and determine what the evolution in the COPD syndrome is and whether any phenotypes actually change or have any kind of variance over time. Um, the second issue is trying to figure out exactly what emphysema represents from a mechanistic standpoint. As some would um, conclude that emphysema may simply be a marker of smoking-related injury. And, and therefore, it, it doesn't matter how extensive it is. The, the finding of emphysema says that the lung doesn't tolerate the exposure to cigarette smoke very well. And, and I think that's, that's, that's an interesting hypothesis. But I think we need to go beyond that in terms of kind of testing in kind of a laboratory setting and looking at preclinical models, using cell studies, using kind of omics and data associated with that to have a better understanding of why the lung responds to kind of cigarette smoke injury in that way. Well, I think you touched a very interesting point. And actually, I want to ask you a couple of questions. The first is, uh, given the importance of the HRCT scanning phenotyping patients with COPD, do you recommend that the HRCT scan is performed to all the, in all the COPD patients coming to our clinic? And also, should we think about including the HRCT scan results into the gold guidelines? And then my feeling is that we are going back again to the pink puffer and the blue border. Is that actually correct? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think we all remember those Netta photographs of the pink puffer and the blue. Um, I, I don't, I don't think so because I, I think we recognize that those were overly simplistic designations. Um, but I, and, and I think we also recognize that we don't understand emphysema as well as we thought we did, and um, that's probably a, a statement that you would be able to weigh in on because you have done a great deal of work in terms of the vascular hypothesis associated with emphysema. And, and I will say that kind of in my own experience with persons who have genetic disorders of the matrix that can manifest, manifest itself in 
clinical emphysema, that there is an association with, between vascular pathology and the development of emphysema and the clinical presentation of pneumothoraces. And, and so what's one question we need to kind of examine is, what is the nature of that vascular pathology that may predispose to this clinical phenotype? Yes, so since you mentioned the vascular pathology, uh, what comes to my mind are, is the existence of the COPD endotypes, uh, where endotypes are currently defined as the pathobiologic mechanism underlying any kind of disease, and the recognizing the underlying endotype would allow an early diagnosis of uh, the disease, and in this case of COPD. For example, you mentioned the endothelial dysfunction, but I can also mention the airway disease, the airway remodeling, which can be considered as an endotype underlying the COPD. So do you think that actually recognizing the endotype will, would allow us a better and a earlier diagnosis of COPD? Uh, yeah, I actually do. I mean, I, I think we're far from kind of incorporating those types of assessments into guidelines. But my general feeling is that when we're kind of um, actually assessing whether a patient who's a chronic smoker with symptoms has COPD and we get PFTs that suggest they're a moderate disease and there's an appreciable level of disability, I tend to get a CT scan to determine the degree of architectural deterioration or destruction, and also to make an assessment as to whether this patient may well be a candidate for surgical options or even bronchoscopic LVRS. Um, but what we don't do routinely is we don't make um, a quantitative assessment of emphysema. So the, the actual quantitation of low attenuation areas is not part of the standard clinical practice in these patients and is typically used for research purposes in cohorts of persons with um, COPD or smokers with symptoms. So there hasn't been kind of a, a suggestion or, or clinical guidelines that direct us towards using CT densitometry, and I hope that that's be kind of in future kind of recommendations for the management of these patients. Um, what's also coming out is kind of clear-cut standards and criteria for kind of looking at different types of emphysema. For patients that I frequently see who have genetic emphysema, they typically have paraseptal emphysema. So they have very plural-based disease, and that's why they're at such high risk of developing pneumothoraces. We know that paraseptal disease, we know that central lobular disease, and we obviously know that upper, upper um, lobe emphysema are all manifestations of chronic smoking exposure, as well as other predisposing factors. So we need to be able to kind of have a consistent assess those morphologies as we subphenotype our patients with COPD. Yeah, that is right. And in fact, right now, I think that the big um, cohorts that study COPD, such as COPD genus pyramics, are moving towards this direction. So do you think these are suitable cohorts for the study of early COPD? Um, I, I, I think they, they, they're useful because I think they may provide some information about biomarkers or disease features 
that suggests that early COPD will progress to late COPD. Because I think that type of information would allow us to operationalize the definition of early COPD. So that would be helpful. Um, I, I think the challenge with those cohorts um, is trying to use the information that they provide um, to develop kind of interesting and potentially effective novel therapies. So the interface between kind of the cohorts and the information that are obtained and going back to the bench and going back to primary discovery has been kind of not um, as kind of intimate as some would like. Um, and so I think that could be kind of a goal going forward, that if we're going to have these very, very large cohorts, we should have some kind of redirection or some way of making sure that the findings go into the lab so that they could potentially be developed into novel treatments. But I think in terms of codifying the phenotype of early COPD, I think that would be helpful. And it will also kind of um, allow us to have the, the challenging discussion of whether um, uh, symptomatic smokers should fall under the umbrella of COPD or whether they should be approached as an entity all on their own and um, with therapies that are directed towards their constellation of symptoms independent of um, the lack of kind of clear-cut obstruction. Yeah, actually, we used to have the goal zero COPD, and then uh, it was removed. Why do you think the goal zero stage was removed from the goal guidelines? Well, the reason it was removed was because of the same challenge that we're confronting kind of now, is that there was no um, way of ensuring that the persons with goal zero would actually develop clinically overt COPD. So it was a category whose kind of natural history was was not well described, and 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 therefore it, it it wasn't a very clinically useful designation, even though many of those patients, of course, had cough and sputum production. So um, I I think we could entertain possibly calling it COPD or calling it. Um, some other type of diagnosis. But I think once we do that, the, the question will be, should those types of studies that are directed towards COPD be channeled towards pre-COPD or this other clinical entity? And I think that's probably a discussion that the pulmonary community will have to have in the next several years. Since right now we are moving towards Everybody's interested in early COPD, but how, in terms of interventions, how can we really detect and treat early COPD? What is the target population? So we should target all the smokers or we should go back to the birth and uh, target these people who have very low lung function at birth, for example, these people who were exposed to maternal smoke or people born with the bronchopulmonary dysplasia. So who, what, what is the target population? Where should we extend our interest? I think that's uh, that's an incredibly important question because um, when the um, when the investigators um, attached to the Eclipse cohort 
determined that there was a subset of persons who had clinical COPD, but over a three-year time frame did not have accelerated loss of lung function. The question became, well, if they're not having accelerated loss of lung function, how do they actually get to the level of kind of a lung disease that gives them the diagnosis of COPD? And, and that was kind of demonstrated later on when those three cohorts of the Framingham, the, um, the um, Copenhagen study, as well as the Loveless smoking cohort that you talked about, when those smokers were looked at over time, and those were smokers as well as non-smokers, and, and they found that there was a subject that had never achieved kind of maximal lung function, and that with kind of a normal deterioration of lung function, they eventually developed COPD. Now, that group, that was fairly substantial because you were talking about kind of, um, I think it was 30, 35% of their cohort of people with COPD. And the problem is that those are not patients who are going to be regularly seen in any type of clinical context. They will not be evaluated until they develop symptoms. So can we capture them at an earlier stage? Could we potentially capture them when they're teenagers and they carry a diagnosis, as you said, of bronchopulmonary dysplasia? Or they carry a diagnosis of chronic pediatric wheezing? Or they carry a diagnosis of some kind of early maternal smoking exposure that's led to reduced lung function? And transition them to kind of chronic management in an adult kind of healthcare system so that they are actually marked as persons who have a high risk of developing COPD. But to do that, we'd have to have a relationship that was workable with the pediatric pulmonary community because we need to understand that population. And, and I think it, it, it creates kind of this enormous opportunity for us to work on that, that challenging problem and to decide what is it about achieving maximal lung function at a certain time that predisposes you to development of COPD? What are the exacerbating factors for that? Are there interventions that might prevent those young adults from actually developing COPD later in life? Um, now that we have, like, amazing researchers like Dr. Martinez um, in Arizona um, and others who are following these kind of birth cohorts over time, hopefully we'll be able to develop and identify biomarkers that will help us better understand those that are at greatest risk of developing disease in later life. Yeah, I think right now we should focus on better phenotyping patients with COPD because right now we're at the point where a patient with the COPD in the later stages of the disease gets up to nine therapeutic options. And probably this uh, variation, this, uh, choice, this wide choice of therapeutic options is just an attempt to encompass under the same umbrella different diseases. So probably we're just calling COPD different diseases which need to be better phenotyped. For example, the so-called low flyers, the ones who are born with a low lung function, and they do not really decline, they just stay low, probably they do not need any treatment, even though they develop severe COPD very early in, in, in the age. Exactly. And, and uh, but what, one question we never pose is that if we 
know the risk factors for kind of the blunting of the attainment of kind of maximal lung function, should we intervene at kind of um, 8, 10, 12, 14 years of age, time frames where the lung is still to some extent growing? And, and that's kind of an issue that we haven't really discussed. And the reason we don't discuss that is we don't know what those interventions should be. And, um, and, and I think that illustrates one of the major challenges that we confront in the COPD universe, and that is kind of a lack of disease-modifying therapies. Um, we have a few that have limited effectiveness. They're very good in terms of symptom management, but in terms of significant disease modification or effects on early mortality, they're, they're, not, um, they're not what we want. So I think thinking about things in terms of the pediatric kind of body and the pediatric kind of lung being incredibly plastic and very hospitable to interventions should make us start thinking about some of the kind of um, therapies that we could potentially introduce at that young age that might affect their ability to achieve maximal lung function. Yeah, I think we have touched a very interesting point, and what comes out from this conversation is that there is still a lot of research to be done, and probably right now we were kind of off-targeting the real problem in COPD, uh, but now we are starting identifying um, the real target uh, in the COPD research, which is starting much earlier than when the um, lung function decline starts being very evident and start creating problems. And so uh, I think the definition of early COPD needs to be a little bit reworked uh, because early, early refers to a time point when the, the, the disease was diagnosed, which not necessarily means when the, the disease started and the disease can start at birth. So that's I think that's true. That's, that's thoroughly true. So, um, so would you like to conclude with some uh, hope for the future research? Um, well, one area I would like to kind of dive back into, um, uh, just because I, I think that there are interesting research questions to develop, and, and that is kind of this, the phenotype of kind of airway predominant COPD. And when I think about airway kind of phenotypes of COPD, I, I kind of break it down into two areas. I consider the chronic bronchitis phenotype that we all know very well, and we know is associated with exacerbations, and we know is associated with, um, in some studies, kind of um, increased mortality. But the other kind of aspect of kind of airway predominant disease is this kind of chronic remodeling that um, seems to evolve into overt airway dropping. And so it's the loss of the small airway that seems to be the early lesion that predisposes to the development of emphysema. We have no mechanistic data on why that happens. And so there's much to be learned about what that process involves. Yeah, there are beautiful studies from the group of Jim Hogg showing that actually the terminal bronchioles are 
disease very early in the pathogenesis of the disease, and then that the, the disease of the terminal bronchial precedes what happens in the, in the alveoli, the emphysema, and then eventually the lung function decline. But we should also remember that this classical view of the pathogenesis of COPD where the gold one uh, comes before the gold two, and then the gold three, then the gold four, it's not actually necessarily true. There are some people who are uh, who have very severe uh, pathology um, characterizing COPD since the beginning, and some other people will have the pathology of uh, the mild disease forever without progressing into gold three and four. So probably this temporal sequence of the pathologic events underlying the, the, the COPD has to be also um, reworked a little bit. Um, we, we know now that not necessarily one event precedes another event. Some events can overlap and some other events will never follow each other. So the basic science needs really to address what happens in uh, the early stage of COPD that not, does not necessarily mean what happens before the, the onset of emphysema. Um, so I think this was a very uh, productive conversation. It was very interesting. We touched very interesting points that are, uh, are, are very new and uh, worth investigation. Uh, do you want to conclude saying something? Yeah, um, I, I, I wanted to um, conclude on kind of this on two points. One was the issue of kind of interventions because the hopeful note with COPD is that we can do something. And unfortunately, there's um, a climate of nihilism that's often attached to the diagnosis. And unfortunately, it's often expressed by clinicians who manage patients with COPD. And um, what we know is that there are interventions that are effective and that can make um, a patient's quality of life significantly better. And we know, one, that for patients who have frequent exacerbations, our pharmacotherapies can actually reduce the number of those exacerbations. And so if you're managing a patient with frequent exacerbations, there are interventions that are effective. We know that for chronic bronchitis, we have some interventions like reflumolast and airway clearance measures and, and mucolytics potentially that could definitely help with the quality of life. For emphysema, we have some surgical options that might be effective, but we also have some treatments that can target kind of the hyperinflation state. And there's a great deal of activity that are going on in multiple labs to deal with this issue of how to regenerate an airspace and make it functional. And, and lastly, um, airway obstruction with dyspnea, which is the common kind of constellation that we see in patients. We know that our kind of triple therapies with inhaled corticosteroids, the lama lavas, as well as the as-needed short-acting bronchodilators, that that the combination is effective. And what we need to do is to have more people seen by clinicians who are willing to start them on effective therapy. But there are questions that are unresolved. We don't know how to de-escalate therapy in patients who are doing well. We do know that we can actually take patients off inhaled corticosteroids and we don't have to worry about relapse. Um, we also don't know what to do if there's no clinical improvement in patients who are on optimal treatment. Um, and so there's lots of information that we can potentially develop. 
So I, I, I think we're kind of in a, a very good point in terms of COPD, that there are questions that many of us are pursuing. We have cohorts that hopefully will provide some um, longitudinal natural history data. We have researchers um, that are anchored in the lab, like my lab and others, that want to ask kind of very mechanistic questions that hopefully will lead to targeted therapies. And we have kind of a, a, a very excited patient population who are interested in kind of better and much more effective treatment. Yeah, thank you very much, Janet. I think to conclude, we need to invite the audience to a talk which will be held at the ATS in uh, uh, in 2019. Uh, we will have a talk on early uh, a symposium on early COPD. So for whoever is interested in uh, this topic, they should that we should definitely attend the talk and the next ATS conference. Perfect. Thank you for joining us on the ATS RCAB podcast. Tune in next time when we hear about novel therapies and advances in the treatment of patients with cystic fibrosis.